Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cujo Virgil, and I'm super excited for our guest today. Our guest today is Isaac Weinberger. Now, Isaac is a cost segregation specialist with Madison Specs. And cost segregation, if you don't know anything about it, is one of the most valuable tools in the real estate investing space today when it comes to lowering your tax liability and, quite frankly, making your investors happy. So, To date, he has helped clients offset north of $200 million in tax liabilities since joining Madison Specs, and Isaac is also the founder of Tuesday Connections, a virtual real estate networking event every Tuesday. Isaac, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Yannick, for allowing me the opportunity to be on. I've done a lot of podcasts uh, with many people, successful people, but this is my first time I'm on with a, with a former uh, NFL star. So it's definitely, definitely a, a pretty, pretty cool vibe. Yeah, no, I appreciate <laughs> that. You know, we just try to give, uh, you know, professional athletes, you know, current and past, as well as busy professionals, high income earners, people who are interested in getting into real estate, whether it's active or passive, you know, deep insight on how to become a real estate mogul, right? And I think part of that too is just understanding how to lower your taxes, right? When you talk about, the rich and the wealthy, you know, the rich people certainly know how to lower their tax liability. And so with that, cost segregation is definitely a great tool to have in your toolbox. But before we dive into the specifics behind what is cost segregation, give our listeners maybe one or two minutes about who you are and how you got to where you are today. So, hey, everybody, uh, thank you for tuning in to this unbelievable podcast hosted by Yannick give you guys an inside look about what cost segregation is. Um, I'm very excited about that. The way I got to Madison Specs is pretty interesting. I was working in a high-end clothing store. I was actually making a pretty solid salary. I was talking to a friend one night and he told me, hey, Isaac, there is no excuse for a guy like you not to be in the real estate world. Yes, you can make a couple hundred grand a year doing what you're doing, working from nine to five or nine to six, working Sundays every day, no time off. But if you get into the real estate field, you will have the opportunity one day to own real estate, create your own schedule, be your own boss, create possibly a tremendous amount of income that real estate provides us if we play our cards right. And he told me, instead of just starting to syndicate yourself right now, I would suggest you go into one of these fields, whether it's insurance, cost ag, title, brokerage, get to know the field, look at deals, analyze deals, speak to people, grow your network. And then from there, in a few years down the line, when you start out, you'll be so much ahead of the average guy starting out. And what I've learned in the past two years over here at Madison Specs has been a tremendous amount uh, in the real estate world. And thank God it's going really good here. But one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start knocking out those deals. I already, I already am an LP in a few deals. Um, I look at deals. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a master underwriter, but I definitely got the hang of it. 
And I just am so excited to connect with so many people like you guys and um, excited to be here today. Yeah, and I, and I would imagine that just being in the space, you get to be in front of like different professionals. And I've heard you on a different podcast talk about whether it's industrial or you attending like an ICSC conference or different places that you can bring cost segregation to those professionals, because at the end of the day, it's all real estate, right? The numbers certainly have to make sense, but cost segregation can be applied, you know, in those, you know, various asset classes. But, you know, let's dive into cost segregation, right? So give our listeners, you know, some insight on like what actually cost segregation is like on the granular level, right? Because we hear it all the time. You know, I'd love for you to kind of explain it on a granular level so that when they talk to their investors or their, you know, investors who maybe might be passive, want to talk to their spouses or whatever the case may be, they can kind of tell them how amazing this study is. Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite topics, obviously. It's something I talk about all the time. Uh, the way I'll start is like this, talk about regular depreciation and how that channels into cost segregation. So I'm assuming most people here are aware of what standard depreciation is. Depreciation is a very cool idea. Even though most real estate appreciates and that's why we're in the game, because you buy a property for 400 grand, boom, a couple of years later, it could be worth much, much more. The government views that your property is going down in value due to the fact that it's older. So if you buy, and by the way, this is only on investment properties. So if you buy a million dollar multifamily property, let's say eight units, um, the way it works is over 27 and a half years, the government views and the IRS views that your property is going to depreciate completely. So over a period of 27 and a half years, minus the land, because land never goes bad. So let's say land is 10%. So you're left with 900 grand. That 900 grand over 27 and a half years, you will get back a little piece of that every single year um, on your tax return. So if your tax liability was 170 grand and you're getting 30 grand, it will be lower to 140. Boom. Now you're paying less taxes. That's standard depreciation that your accountant does for you. And again, people call me all the time. Can I do it on my primary house? No, this is only on investment properties. Cost segregation is accelerating your depreciation. So imagine, imagine Yannick, I would owe you a hundred bucks. Instead of taking 10 bucks a year for 10 years, you take 30 bucks in year one, and then the remaining 70 bucks, you take it over the, the following nine years. Obviously, uh, if, if you would give me that choice, I would rather take it earlier on because now I have more cash flow. And more cash flow means I can invest in more real estate. And I believe that the reason behind the laws of COSAG was in order to enable people like me and you and the people here listening to have more cash flow earlier on and invest in more real estate. How does it work, though? You wanted a, an inside look of how the cost seg works. The way it works is like this. There's three components in every single property. You buy a multifamily property, there's three different components. There's structural components, which is the actual structure of the building, the walls, the foundation. That depreciates over a period of 27 and a half years. In the 27 and a half year bucket, there's 15-year property, which is land improvements, which include parking lot, landscaping, bushes, trees you might have put in, that all depreciates over 15 years. Then there's five-year property, which is cabinetry, flooring, light bulbs, chandeliers, door handles. That depreciates over five years. A regular accountant 
throws all three under the long-term bucket of 27 and a half years or 39 years for commercial. And the reason he does that is because he's not a cost ex specialist. He doesn't know how to segregate it correctly. Um, he could be the best accountant. They just never learned how to do that. And therefore, he throws it under long-term depreciation, resulting in a guy like me or you that buys a multifamily property that he's taking his depreciation over 27 and a half years, even though there are components in there that can be taken earlier on. What we do as a cost that company is we come in, we identify the five and 15 year components. We write down and we see, hey, is there 17% of the property, uh, five and 15 year components? Is it 30%? Once we do that and we identify all the five and 15 year components, we allow the purchaser, the syndicator, the investor to take that um, at a faster track. That was cost segregation prior to September of 2017. In September of 2017, Congress put into law that all five and 15-year assets can be taken on year one, which is betterly known as bonus depreciation. So basically, it's a domino effect. The way it works is like this. We come in, we identify the five and 15-year components. Let's say we identify 22% a five and 15 year component. So right now you can take that on year over five and 15 years. Once we identify it, boom, automatically bonus depreciation is activated on the five and 15 year, which allows you to take that on year one. So obviously the benefit of cross-seg is to free up more cash flow, reduce your tax liabilities, buy more real estate. Yeah, well said. And thank you for that explanation. I think you you slam dunked it with that one. Thank you, thank you. I mean, like you mentioned, right? It's it's all about time value of money, right? You gave the example of, you know, with the 100 bucks, 30 bucks in year one. You know, it's all about time value of money, right? A dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. Love and, you know, right. when you take that cost segregation, then, you know, you're able to utilize the depreciation to, you know, get, quote unquote, those paper losses that you can offset other income sources. Uh, you get more money today that you can use to buy other real estate, you know, um, other investments, whatever the case may be. And I think that's the best beauty of the cost segregation strategy, right? If our listeners want to, like, if they see a property, right, a 50 unit property, what's the process like from getting a quote to actually like starting a process? Maybe if you can kind of absolutely go behind that, right? So if, you know, I'm interested in buying a 50 unit building, you know, I want to know like how much it's going to cost. I want to know like, hey, you know, what's the minimum purchase price that I should be looking at to see if this cost segregation study would make sense? Like kind of go through that process from quote to actually starting the process of like sending the engineer out to evaluate the property to get the final report. Love these questions. All great, great points that um, these are, are must knows for, for the audience. So I'm going to start off like this. People ask me all the time, at what price point, and you mentioned this, Yannick, at what price point should I start considering a cost seg? And I tell them $300,000. The reason why I say $300,000 is like this. Let's say you have a guy that purchased a property for two hundred grand. The most I'm going to be able to get him is going to be 25% on a single family house. Okay, So if I can get him 25% on two hundred grand, you are looking at $30,000 of a tax deduction. A $30,000 tax deduction is only going to put an extra five, six, seven grand in your pocket. So if you're going to pay a few grand for the study, it's not going to justify the write-up you're going to get. 
So that's why I say under 300, it's not worth it. Once you hit 300, the write-off that I'm going to be able to get you will be worth the money that you're going to spend. That's just for starters that people should know. Now, obviously, most people here um, are purchasing bigger and better things. I do small studies all the time, but we're talking to many multifamily guys. And the way it works is like this. What I give over to my prospects and clients is I don't want you to just wait till you close to reach out to me. I want to be there through the process and help you out with preliminary numbers. Because many times syndicators, just like you, Yannick, go to their investors and say, hey, I want you to invest in my deal. And they're like, hey, what's the benefits? You say, oh, appreciation, you're going to have equity, we're going to refi, the whole nine yards. But many syndicators are telling their investors, you're going to get X amount of dollars in depreciation. So I have many people, even before they go on their contract or right when they start going on their contract, they're submitting their, their LOIs, even right before they're accepted, they'll ask me for a preliminary quote. And I'll analyze the property. I'll give them the basic numbers. I'm always within 2% because I've been doing this for a while. So I know exactly which properties get what. If there's vinyl flooring, you get more. If there's hardware flooring, you get less. Go along the whole, the, the, uh, play the whole game. So the idea is I'll give them uh, a preliminary quote. Once they're under contract, I'll actually send them a paper proposal. They'll give me the purchase price, the projected closing date, and the address. I'll run an actual proposal where our ops team will actually like psychoanalyze the property and spit out a projection of, hey, we're going to get this amount of write-off in year one. Then they close on the property like, hey, Isaac, we want to execute this. We want to do this. They sign it. We go out to the property. We look at every single nook and cranny, every single corner, and we back up every single dollar we take. So let's say we see that there's a chandelier there. So the chandelier is worth 500 bucks. We jot that down and we, and we send out a full report at the end of the day of all our findings. Let's say we found in a million dollar property, let's say we found $200,000 that you could take in year one. Every single dollar of that $200,000 amount that we found will be listed and pinpointed on the final report showing how we got to those numbers. Once that happens, we send it to the CPA for approval, to your, your CPA for approval. He approves it. He plugs it into your LLC, to the investors' K-1s. They each get their amount proportionally. So let's say you have an investor that has a 2% equity stake in your property. He'll get 2% of the accelerated depreciation, and everything works like a charm. So that's the general process of how it works. I think you might have had uh, one more point. We talked about the price point. We talked about how it works, what the engineers do. Many times, we'll beat our projection because... We use Google Maps, we use photos, appraisals, co-star listings to get as much info and pictures on the property. But when we ultimately come down to the property, we always end up seeing a bit more that we didn't see. So we always beat our projections by anywhere from 2 to 7%. Well, that's great. And thank you for outlining that process. The cost segregation study is definitely not a cheap study, <laughs> but it's worthwhile. Interesting to know. I don't know which companies you're familiar with, but I will tell you is that we generally charge $5,000 for a multifamily property, regardless of how big it is. It could be 50 units and it could be 250 units. And the reason is, is because when we go into a multifamily property, generally there's two style units, two style units. And all we have to do legally by the IRS is to go into two units of each. So it doesn't really make a difference if it's a 50 unit or a 250 unit, generally the price will be the same. Wow. Oh, that's great. 
because some do it differently, right? Some charge depending on the, the size of it, but it's great to know that Madison Specs has some stability behind the cost. You know, as an investor, that's gold in my ears to hear that you kind of know where your cost is going to be, especially when you're putting together your numbers and your acquisition costs. But I think notably, a lot of times what you do is you, you know, you take the the report that you, the estimate, the quote that you get, the projections, and you put that into your presentations and you go out and you talk to your investors about the potential benefits that they can also get on top of investing their capital, on top of the cash flow, on top of the, the proceeds. And my next point would be the recapture side of things, right? Because if we're flipping, doing something within six months, it's probably not worth our cost, right? So at what point, I guess, within the whole period, do you typically see investors like what's the minimum kind of number from a whole period perspective that would make sense for an investor to hold the property if they were to utilize this cost segregation study? So absolutely. This is actually a fabulous question. It's probably the most important question that the listeners here uh, should pay attention to. Recapture. I want to tell you the, the myths about recapture, but I want to tell you the real deal about recapture because recapture is real. And for some guys, it does not make sense to do a cross-sex study. And the way it works is like this. The reason why the IRS allows uh, depreciation is because they think that when you buy a property, you're going to hold on to it until it's death. You're going to hold on to it, not until the purchaser, the buyer's death, until the property's death, which means 27 and a half years. They look at a residential property that has a lifespan of 27 and a half years and a commercial property has a lifespan of 39 years. So if you hold it for the whole time, it will depreciate down to zero. But if you sell it after five years, they say, hey, Yannick, you're not allowed to take depreciation because you're not holding on to it for the rest of its life. You're only allowed depreciation if you're going to hold on to it until its life is over. So you get hit with something called recapture. You buy a $2 million property, we get you 400 k in year one as a tax write-off. You sell it three years later. The same tax liability that you got out of, that you deferred, you will have to pay when you sell the property. Now, that should not be a deterrence, and I'll tell you why. And we'll get to short-term holes and fix and flips very soon, but the reason why it shouldn't be a deterrence is like this. You so nicely said earlier, time value money. I posted on LinkedIn a few days ago and I got a crazy amount of comments. If I would lend you $100,000 interest-free for three years, would you take it? And everybody said to me, Isaac, send me the dotted line. We're ready to sign. Of course, who wouldn't take a $100,000 interest-free loan? The way we look at COSEG and the way investors and syndicators look at COSEG is that you're paying a few grand to be able and enable yourself to throw your tax liability down the road. Similar to a 1031. A 1031, you're not erasing your tax liability. By 1031, you're just deferring your capital gains down the road. But eventually, if you sell it, you will get hit with capital gains. That's the way it works. They call by 1031s, I think it's called swap until you drop. Because if you <laughs> die, then you give it off to your kids, then you don't get hit back with uh, capital gain uh, tax. But same idea with COSEG. It's very similar to 1031 in the sense that you're not erasing your tax liability. What you're doing is you're throwing it down the road. So if I could pay five grand to throw my big tax liability down the road, get myself tons of extra cash to throw into a new property, 
boom, that's a no-brainer. Now, something else to, that many people don't know. When you offset your tax liability initially with the cost seg, you could offset your taxes all the way up to 37.5% on ordinary income. So if you're getting taxed at 37.5%, you could offset that. When you get hit with recapture, which is called depreciation recapture, it maxes out by 25%. So ultimately, you're going to be benefiting because you would have been paying 37.5% and now you only get taxed at 25%. So that's a benefit in its own right and something to just think about. So recapture is very important, but to know, but time value money, or if you 1031 the property, you do not get hit with recapture. So besides for the 1031 world, if you do a cost seg on property A, you sell it, and then you buy property B with the proceeds from property A, you do a 1031, not only do you, do you get to defer your capital gain for the 1031, you get to defer the cost seg depreciation recapture. So there's really two answers to recapture, time value money and 1031. But let's say you're a fix and flip guy. I have a client that I actually do title work with. He buys a thousand units a year. He's paying crazy taxes. He does in 1031 and he sells the units after a year. He only holds for a year. He does some renovations, boom, sells it, makes some cash, does it again. Cost seg for him is not going to be relevant because he's only going to get one calendar year of the tax savings and then he's going to get hit the next year. So by the time he has the ability to spend that money, um, it's already going to be the next tax season. He's only going to have a few months. It doesn't really make too much sense to get involved in the gate. Now, it could be the calculation with the 37 and a half versus the 25, 25%. It could be that that's something that I should discuss with him and to revisit. But on, on a simple level, if you're going to sell after a year, the benefits that you're going to get uh, with the extra cash flow is not going to really be worth it because by the time you have a chance to spend it, you're going to get hit with the new tax bill, which ultimately is just you're going to have to pay it back. So that's... Uh, for people that buy and hold, most indicators are three to five year holds. So it's very well worth it. That's the, that's the, a quick snapshot of recapture. Yeah, no, that was really, really good. And thank you for breaking that down. And and I didn't, didn't really think about the opportunity to 1031 out of some of these deals and kick that can down the road. I think that's how wealth is created is the ability to understand how the tax law is structured in a way that favors you the most because that's what the wealthy do. They just kick taxes down the road and they have the cash today to invest. I want to chime in for a second, Yannick. This is uh, something that's probably many people's pet peeve. So I'm not getting into politics and obviously Trump is Trump. But when there was an article that came out a few years ago that like in 2020, Trump paid like, or 2016, 2015, he paid like $750 in income tax. And everybody was up in arms. Trump, he's crazy. How to do that? I, even me, I was like, something doesn't make sense. He's gonna get put in jail. What he do? He made the taxes. Now that I got into the cost seg in 1031 world, and Trump is a real estate mogul, he probably just did a lot of 1031s and a lot of cost segs, and that really wiped away his tax liability. Think about yeah. it. It's exactly what you were just saying. Definitely. I mean it. You know, for, to be a full-time real estate investor, and you know, we can segue into the real estate professional status. To be a full-time real estate investor is a very, very opportunistic route to be very, very wealthy. I mean, the tax code is 
very favorable to people who own real estate. That's just a fact. And, you know, if you become a full-time real estate investor and you're able to claim the real estate tax professional status, a lot of these cost segregation, depreciation, um, you know, uh, dollar amounts can be you know used to offset other income sources. It's such a beauty in just being able to like strategically use the cost segregation for yourself, for your investors, and just leverage that in a way that can create wealth for you and your family and generations to come. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return, and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash passive guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N acquisitions.com slash passive guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. So also wanted to ask as well is, you know, what asset classes are you also seeing the best cost segregation studies come out of, right? Because there's another thing too that, you know, some of our investors might be interested in, maybe um, scattered site, you know, single family acquisitions as well at scale, right? You know, there's a lot of talk about built to rent. There's a lot of talk about, you know, single family rentals at scale, institutional capital, getting into those markets. Maybe touch on that a little bit for our investors to understand, you know, which asset classes yield the best cost segregation dollar amounts. And then maybe also in the single family space, you know, if it's worth it or not, to what scale? Great, great point. Uh, This is a question that I get asked by every single podcaster. Um, It's a very important point to know because I'm going to actually share a secret today that I believe 90% of the listeners over here or possibly higher will not have heard of what I'm about to say. I'm going to start from highest to lowest. The best depreciation for your buck is going to be car washes and gas stations. Mm. Car washes and gas stations get anywhere from 90 to 98% or sometimes even 100% of the purchase price. I just got a client who purchased a $500,000 car wash. I got him a $450,000 deduction in year one. And there were different laws that went into effect that enabled car wash owners and gas station owners, maybe Congress wanted, maybe the government wanted people to buy these stuff so they gave extra benefits. So it's incredible. Somebody's getting hit with a big tax bill and they can find a cash flow and car wash or gas station. It's unbelievable depreciation benefits on those through a cost seg. The next asset class that's the best asset class is mobile home parks, which are park-owned homes. A mobile home park, there's very little structure. So even the actual outside, sometimes it can be considered five-year components, which can be taken on year one, as we explained earlier. Mobile home parks, if they're park-owned homes, can get anywhere from 50 to 75% of the purchase price in year one as a tax write-off. Now, I say park-owned homes because if they're not park-owned homes, then all you really own is the land and the utilities because the actual renter owns the actual mobile home, so you can't depreciate his asset. Multifamily is the next asset class, but even in multifamily, there's three different types of multifamily. 
Garden style multifamily is the best multifamily in terms of depreciation. You will get close to 30% of your purchase price. And this is mostly what I deal with. 30% of your purchase price um, on year one. You buy a property for a million bucks. We got to subtract land, but you're going to look at close to $300,000 in year one. And the reason why is that there's a lot of grass, a lot of land improvements, some tennis courts, some pools. These are all gold when it comes to costing. The next type of multifamily is a multifamily that's has grass, it has walkways, but it's not, it doesn't have the tennis courts, it doesn't have the crazy big common areas that you'll probably get in the 23 to 25% range. Then there's city style multifamily, which actually did a project earlier this year on $108 million multifamily property in the city in Manhattan. He only got 10%. And the reason is there was no land improvements, no parking spots, no grass, no anything. And that's usually a big makeup of, of the components that we take. So it really makes a difference and it really varies the type of multifamily property that you would have. Single family houses. Single family houses generally get anywhere from 15 to 25%. And this is also very similar to multifamily. If you have a single family house with a huge backyard and a huge front yard and a pool and a basketball court, will get you 25, 28%. If you have a single family house, like I just did in Philly, where there's literally no parking, no front yard, no backyard, no driveway, you're going to get 15%. Built to rent, by the way, I'll just stick in, is the same exact idea as anything. Built to rent, the way it works is you send us your construction costs, the soft costs, the hard costs, and ultimately it'll be the same thing. If you built to rent and you spend 2 million bucks, and you buy a property for $2 million, bucks, the depreciation benefits will be very similar. That's the way it works. You just send us all the costs, and we run through it. We, we separate what structure, what's the 15-year components, what's the five-year components. Boom. We'll give, you, we'll give you an idea of what you'll get. The other asset classes that are not as beneficial, retail, medical, and industrial, and self-storage. So retail and medical is sometimes very beneficial. I just got a client 25% for a retail property. And the reason why I got it so high was because there was a huge parking lot. So even though the actual property didn't have so many components inside to be taken earlier on, because there's just many times retail stores, Yannick, is uh, empty inside. You go into a Target. It's made up many, many times of hollow space. And then they put in their hanging stuff and there's no cabinetry and vinyl flooring and, and uh, chandeliers, et cetera. But if there's a big parking lot, we'll get a lot. Industrial and self-storage, same idea. Generally, it's completely hollow inside. So there's very, very few components that we can take. But if you have a very big parking lot, we could get more. I just did a study for somebody in Texas. The projection was 7% and they still signed because it was a big purchase. So they were still getting a nice amount. And we ended up getting double because we found more stuff once we came down. So just to, just to remind us, the lowest asset class is industrial and self-storage. Still worth it to get a complimentary proposal. It doesn't hurt you. Then I would say retail, medical, family office, those types of things. Then I would jump up to single family, then multifamily, then mobile home parks, and then car washes and gas stations. That's the basic rundown and the run through through the asset classes. No, thank you for that detailed approach. That's such a high discrepancy between like from a 60 in the mobile home park space to like 90. You know, maybe I need to go like start looking for car washes now. <laughs> so let me know what, what's the difference there. Right. So I have to research it. 
I believe and my gut feeling tells me that I guess the government wanted people to buy these. Uh, people were shying away from them for some reason. Maybe there weren't as uh, cash producing properties and they just incentivize them. That's really what they did. That's what I believe, because if you think about it, a car wash has the same structure as another building. It's brick. It's whatever it is. What's the difference? Why are they considering the outside structure as a type of component that can be taken earlier on? I, I want to research that. It's a great point. But I, I think I was taught when I when I grew up, when good things are thrown at you, we don't ask questions. <laughs> You're giving me a hundred yeah. bucks. Give me the hundred bucks. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's a good point. Good point. Sometimes you just got to not ruffle the feathers. No, it's a great point. I, I, I want to research it, but I, I don't know exactly why. Yeah. I don't know. Good point. You know, the government is giving you tax benefits, so go ahead and take it, right? <laughs> this conversation has been really, really great. You touched on cost segregation, you know, the process if someone is interested in in the cost segregation study and needs a quote, you know, taking that all the way to engineering process, getting that finalized, uh, the different asset classes, the minimum cost to it, uh, the single family space, is it beneficial? Is it not? Tons of actionable items that I think our investors can, our, our listeners can run with, whether they're active or passive and just kind of figuring out is cost segregation a good viable option for them. If our listeners want to learn more about your company, you potentially work with you, get a quote from you, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you in your journey through this space as well? Absolutely. And thank you so much um, for the opportunity again. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. My info is there. I'm happy to share my, my email and phone number. Um, when you post this, you could share my email and phone number. Happy to connect with each and every one of you. I love to discuss COSAG. If you have any questions, um, send you quotes and... Uh, and create some long-lasting friendships. Absolutely. Well, well, we'll link to that in the show notes. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show today. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. Let's take action today. Be great. Remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. So run your own race. Thanks again, Isaac. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.